Before we start today's podcast, a quick heads up on Sheerlux's VIP club. From restaurants, bars and hotels to beauty, wellness and shopping, Sheerlux partners with some of London's best destinations and hottest brands to bring its VIPs exclusive monthly offers. So why not sign up? It'll cost you just £5 a month or £50 for the year. Use your card once or twice and you'll have made that amount back in no time. For more information, visit sheerluxvip.com. A businesswoman who has become a byword for beautiful fragrances, Jo Malone, MBE, is a legendary perfumer who started her Jo Loves perfume line five years after leaving her eponymous brand. From humble beginnings, setting up a skincare clinic in her London home, she soon became unable to keep up with the demand and launched her first brand, Jo Malone London, in 1994, quickly gaining global cult status. She sold the business to Estee Lauder in 1999, staying on as creative director. After her departure from the business in 2006, her passion for fragrance never ceased. And almost 20 years on, she is still at the forefront of the beauty industry with a brand that focuses on quality ingredients. She has been described as an English scent maverick and famously once said, my nose is like my paintbrush. Welcome, Jo Malone, to your Sherlock success story. Thank you. I'm so thrilled to be here. We're so thrilled to be talking to you today. We're going to start back at the beginning when you were working as a facial therapist. Mm -hmm. How did that come about and why did you move into creating fragrance? So my mum had been in the beauty industry. She'd worked for an amazing woman called the Countess Labati, whose real name was Doris Hilda Baker. But back in the day, oh my God, she was incredible. She was an amazing woman. So she worked for her and she was one of the great skin doyens of the time and who looked after literally everybody in London. There was Countess Charky, Countess Labati. And I would always go up with my mum to work on holidays and things. So I would sit with this amazing woman from the age of eight, and that's where I made my first face cream. And obviously I sort of naturally felt that I felt leaning in the beauty industry and skincare, loved it. And I just knew at that moment when I stood in that little laboratory making my first sandalwood face mask, that was what I wanted to do. And you're such a creative, you're a true creative were you from a creative family? I had a very different upbringing to most people. Although as a little girl, I thought everybody had that kind of upbringing. I had two very creative parents. So my dad was a brilliant artist. He was also a member of the Magic Circle. And he was also a huge gambler. So, and very good looking and very suave and very charming. And my mum worked in the beauty industry. She worked for Revlon for a time and then with the Countess Labati. And, and do you know what? When you look back in your life and you think where we come from is such an important ingredient about who we are, I learned to respect creativity. I learned that nobody owns creativity, but that it can be your best friend. So I wouldn't have changed a thing about my childhood. And it was therefore obviously in your genes, but did you have any training for what was to come oh yes I did yeah I trained with my mum so you know I sort of at the age of I think I must have been 20 21 I opened my first skincare clinic and was um, you know very much her protege at the time and uh, then got married and then decided that I really did want to try and find my own feet and so I started my first skincare clinic at the age of 24 years old with 50 clients And where did these clients come from? What was the process of opening the clinic? Word of mouth happens really fast and really quickly. So in the very beginning, I was just married to Gary. We didn't have a penny in our pocket. So I would carry my little massage bed from house to house. 
and hopefully one person would have four friends so I would be there all day long then I'd move on to the next house and next house until we got just enough money together to put a deposit down on a rented apartment in Chelsea we didn't have any more money left for furniture or curtains so we lived in an empty house with a massage bed and plastic bottles and that's how I started I, I did start with the first 10 then 20 then 50 and then it grew to 500 1,000 5,000 in the space of probably a year to wow. 18 months that's, it was all word pretty, of mouth pretty rapid growth all completely word of mouth and I just when I look back on those times it was such a privilege you know we had so little but we did so much with so little and that's often what entrepreneurial businesses do and the fragrance side of it, I would just sit and play with fragrance. It was like watching my dad mix paint, but I was mixing fragrance with my nose. That's so, why I so say. So you would sit there with different notes, would you, and I'd mix just, them together and combine them and see what I'd happened? I'd take little papers and dip them in, and then I'd take a paintbrush. I've used paintbrushes all my life, so I'd do a little bit of this and a little bit of that. And I would make a body lotion of the day for everybody. So I'd mix all these sort of essential oils together and massage their arms while their face mask was on. And that's how it happened. And, and what was the first product that you created Skincare product was a sandalwood face mask with slippery elm. I could still make it for you right now if I had the the ingredients. Oh, I wish you would. The first fragrance, the very first fragrance, I think probably, I'm trying to remember, nutmeg and ginger was probably the one that I made and that, that was the one that sold. So that was the first one going out. But I think I probably, rosemary, lavender, camphor, rose oils, you know, all the things that, rather like being a kid and just putting little drops of things into a little bottle yeah, making and, shaking and making potions. Yours were just probably a bit better than mine. Mine just sold. <laughs> <laughs> and at what point did you know, I've got a business here? Is there a moment that you remember and you think, gosh, I really, I've got something and we've got to do something with this? I, I don't think I ever realised that. I, if I'm really, really honest, I'm not, my mind doesn't think that way. I, at the beginning, it was, okay, I can pay my rent and I can, and I'd come from a background where really... I was the sensible one in the family. I was the one that made sure the rent was paid and the electricity, you know, from the age of 11. So when I had my own business and my own job, my only priority was that we never owed money. I had this rule, couldn't ever be overdrawn, didn't want to owe anyone any money. I just wanted to survive the whole time. And when it turned into a business, I suppose, was when Gary gave up his job and I realised it was serious. We had this little skincare business. He was in the building industry, so he was working for Higson Hill. And he quit his job and came to be by my side. We decided it was for one year and we would see where we were at the end of the year. Uh, We rented a small shop in Walton Street. And it was at that point when I opened that shop on that first day and someone offered me a million pounds to sell my business that day. That's when I knew it was a business. Wow. Wow, did they? A million yeah. pounds on the first day? million dollars, sorry. million dollars. God, yeah. I bet that's not to anyone else. I said no. <laughs> <laughs> Quite rightly so. And what was the time span from the flat in Chelsea to opening the store? How long did that take and what happened in <clears throat> those years? It was just building, you know, like anybody, any entrepreneurial business does. You know, you build, you have an idea, you have a product. Now, today, I have a team of creative people. But back then, it was Gary and I. And I think what no one realised was, and I still own that flat today, by the way. I couldn't bear to part with it because it has so much heritage and belief. And when I wrote the book, I went back and I actually lived in the, uh, and wrote the book in the flat. Did you? Mm. So I could feel it. But Gary and I would stand in the little kitchen that was probably half the size of this trestle table and with four plastic jugs and a couple of saucepans. 
And that's how we, you know, I would think of an idea, create it in the plastic jugs, pour it into the bottles, sit in the typewriter, do the little type labels, and put them onto a shelf, and they would sell. Everything I made sold within the end of the day. It was, it was just didn't matter what I produced. And you were selling to people that came through the door for treatments yes. to see you. Was there any other channel for well, selling? Well, it was. That's how it started out. But then we had people would hear about the product, you know, word of mouth again, and you couldn't buy it anywhere. So I would get calls from people like EMI, and they would come, and they literally just wipe anything. They'd take anything that was on the shelves. And I would say, well, you can have it tomorrow, but I need to sell today, and I can let you have it all tomorrow. I mean, it's it, like it, a little speakeasy. It was go um, <laughs> to the street in Chelsea and quietly knock on the door. How cool would that be, a speakeasy? Yeah. It was just a, a joy, and, you know, people would come. I had retailers coming from all over the world, and they couldn't believe it was made in this little kitchen. So where's your factory? And I went, it's just there. No, your factory. No, it's just there. <laughs> and until a point at which one Christmas there were... Um, when I say thousands of orders, there were thousands of orders. And Gary looked at me and said, I can't do this anymore. We need a shop. And that's when it became a business. And you say there were thousands of orders. There was obviously such a demand for a product. It was like a bath oil and a body lotion. Yeah. But what was the market like at the time? I mean, clearly people's needs were not being met. What I found was unintentionally was a gap in the market, or I created a gap in the market, one or the other. And I suddenly started to call these fragrances exactly what they were and people just sounds so simple doesn't it it just sounds and sometimes the greatest ideas in this world are really simple let's call a sausage a sausage (laughs) exactly and sometimes the the greatest simple ideas are right next to you you don't have to go millions of miles away and uh, it just caught on and every I think it was the way and it's still the way I create today I create with my heart and my soul I don't, I don't ever look at what everyone else is doing. And it's not that I'm not interested. It's just that it's not relevant mm. to that creative process for me. It's what I really feel about things. And I think that's probably, you know, the thing that made me really successful. You say you create and you feel, you smell. And I mean, mm. you are renowned for having the most extraordinary sense of smell. What point did you realise that, that you had the talent so I'm horribly, horribly dyslexic. And my dyslexia at the minute is really awful because when I'm stressed and oh, letters really? it, it move. Oh, really? It does it? Yeah, when you're stressed or when you're hard, hard at work and everything, letters move all the way around the page for me. So I'm mm. literally running around trying to catch up. But what life takes away with one hand, it will often give you back with another. So my nickname in the house is Bloodhound because <laughs> I can smell most things and I thought all kids could smell like that I knew when I was little I knew when the dog was sick I knew when it was going to rain I could smell when my dad would play poker I knew the cards that were new I would just flick them and I could smell or I knew the ones that had been played many many times I don't know it was just this sort of compass I suppose that took me through life that would if I had a gut reaction to something my sense of smell would back it up or warn me Rather like an animal, you know, an animal can sense and smell. I read you could smell Many. running water, is that true? Uh, yes, absolutely. We had a flood in our house, yep. Amazing. And at what point, so you're making all these products in your home, how many years had you been doing this for in your in your Chelsea home, in your flat? Oh, probably, I'm, t- I'm terrible with, with years, probably about seven, eight years. I think that's what people don't see when you, they just saw the success at first shop and each business, when you build something, it does take a lot of hard work to, mm. to get it there. Yes, it doesn't happen overnight. So you opened the store, someone offered you a million dollars on day one. Yep. 
you quite rightly said. No. I was tempted for a second because it meant I could go and buy a bed, but um, <laughs> we still slept on the floor, Gary and I, at that point. So, but no, I never saw him again, and he disappeared. And what happened next for the business? That was what year was that when you opened your first store? Um, 1994 opened my first store and we had five years of phenomenal growth it was every single day it would grow it would grow and you know Gary and I were two young kids who were loving being shopkeepers but had never really entered retail before we had to learn anything from scratch one of our strengths was that Gary had been in the building industry so he he understood contract and he understood how to build physically a business without for him I wouldn't be sitting here right now, that's for sure. But the two of us together, we kind of found our way and it was a huge adventure. I mean, we opened across the world. He signed that first deal with Bergdorf. No one could believe, you know, everyone sort of focuses on me, but no one can believe that Gary Wilcox, who'd come from the building industry, had signed the biggest deal with Bergdorf Goodman and got more from them, our own packaging and everything, than probably most of the big brands out there today. And... I just look back at those times and I think they were really blessed times. They were really, um, we had to learn and there were some big mistakes that we made, but there were also some real wins. And those, you know, in those five years, we we sort of climbed right to the top of the mountain, really. It was, uh, from having spoken to you before and read about you, it's always amazing how much you talk about him and how much, you know, you see it as such a joint effort. And that's, I don't know, it's always struck me that it's a real partnership between you. I think Gary and I are, I'm everything he's not and he's everything I'm not. And together we are really powerful. And actually in the last year, I've seen it again. I, I forgot that actually he and I are the founders of this brand and this business. And together, that strength produces the heartbeat. It reflects our values. It reflects what we believe, how we think, how we respect creativity and how we see long term global business. And what's the key to working together in harmony <laughs> and staying married? Um, <laughs> compromise. I think compromise, respect. And also the, you know, realising that not everybody has all the right ideas all the time, standing with each other when things go wrong, celebrating when things go right. And just, I enjoy his company though. I mean, we've just come back from a week in grass together and there was every, you know, sometimes when you sit at dinner and you watch a couple and they don't talk to each other. I know, I always, that's my I sort just, of fear in life. Just, just think, become that couple. Come join us. We chat and find something to talk about that's either new or different or fun every single day every single day and I think that's the key is to if I didn't enjoy being with him we wouldn't be running a business together good advice well you got to have he something. may say differently <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure not um tell me about Estee Lauder how did that come about I presume they approached you yes I mean I wouldn't have dare have approached them I mean can you imagine someone knocking <laughs> on the door from very very Early on in the shop, we had lots of people coming in, offering to either buy a franchise, invest in the business. As, as my friend from Texas um, said, you know what, honey, you're sitting on a gusher, which is, a, you know, in the oil business, that's when you know there's money. But we had a really small amount of money. So Gary and I owned 100% of uh, Joe Malone. And we had this small amount of money that got smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller as you expand. And we knew that at some point we were either going to have to borrow money, have taken investor. And when the Estee Lauder companies started to come through with Pamela Baxter, Robert Nielsen, they all came into the store and they asked me to go for a meeting to New York. And it was the blizzard of 96, I think it was 97, 
when the whole of the city shut down and we were the last plane into New York City. And Gary and I got up the next morning thinking there'll be no one at this meeting. Off to the GM building, we trot down, get there, and it was like 30 people around a table. And uh, they were just charming and lovely, but obviously were looking at us as an acquisition. And I said I was interested, but I wanted to know what they're really about. So I went to a Clinique conference in a pseudo name to see what they were really like behind closed doors, which was they were exactly who I thought they were. And uh, we decided that they would be great partners. So we spent about six months to a year negotiating, which is often what happens in an acquisition. We decided we didn't want a two-horse race. We looked at Estee Lauder and thought, yep, they have deep pockets, they have money, they have distribution. But they also understood me and the industry. And that last thing was the caveat for me. It was the thing that really was important. Was it a difficult decision? No. No. And it's not a decision I regret today. It's, I would still have sold to them. They are an amazing family. That first year of being with them was incredible. And that was the creative director, wasn't it? Yes, well, I was founder and creative director, yeah. Okay. And you were told not long after that you had cancer. Yeah. Well, I had my son and I had hyperemesis through the whole of my pregnancy, so that vomiting thing. So I was seven stone two when I had my son, which was, I was very poorly. So I'd come through that went back to work, started traveling around the world and just felt so tired the whole time and thought it was just motherhood. And I found a lump in my, my breast, went to have it checked, thought it was a cyst, thought it was, you know, was 38 years old and it wasn't. And they told me here in London that it was a very, very aggressive form of breast cancer, that I had to have immediate surgery and probably should get my life in order that, you know, I was probably looking at a year, nine months to a year to live. My son was two and I was just, I, I mean, I, I can remember Gary falling on the floor and just like, you, you can't, when someone diagnoses you with cancer, you can't believe it's you, you can't believe this is your life. And it's like someone's made a horrible mistake and then you realise that it is and you have to deal with it. And how did that change you as a person? I've got to be really honest, I wanted to live. So, yeah, I was that. Live. And I realised, you know, the responsibilities, but, and the Lord of family were amazing. And that's why... I will never, ever not love them because they saved my life. I went to New York to live. I thought to myself, Joe, you've never listened to anything in life that anyone's told you who you should be. Why on earth are you going to let them tell you when you're going to die? So I ignored that and went straight off to New York, went to see a doctor called Dr. Larry Norton at the Memorial Sloan Kettering. And I was only meant to be there for probably no more than 28 days. And I stayed for a year. So what came through my first, uh, you have a lumpectomy. And I remember my appointment was at three o'clock in the afternoon to get my results. And she called and said, can you come at 5.30? And I said, it's bad news. And my husband said, no, 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 she's probably just busy. I went, and I just knew in my heart, got there and it was the worst news. And she said, um, you're going to have to have immediate surgery and have a mastectomy. And I just couldn't believe it. And you were going to have to do chemotherapy. And the word chemotherapy frightened me more than anything. And I think it does a lot of women. Anyway, you know, my worst nightmare had had landed on my doorstep and I decided that I was going to stay in New York and have everything there. I trusted Larry, who's now one of my dearest friends. And it wasn't that I didn't trust the doctors here. I needed to be in a place where I could hand my life to someone and say, you've got to help me save my life. I can't die. I am now your responsibility. Well... In a funny way, yes. In a funny way, I I didn't know about chemo and surgery and everything. So I went there. I lived there for a year. We moved as a family. 
Gary ran the business from New York and he would commute in the week backwards and forwards. So he was working for Lauder? Yes, we we were all part of the Lauder Corporation. So I would have my chemo on the Tuesday. He would fly on the Thursday because I would be so poorly in those two days, often in hospital. He'd fly on the Thursday, come back by the Monday, have the chemo again. So I was one of the very first women to take chemotherapy every sort of seven days, every week instead of every 10 days to two weeks. And it was grueling. My body was, like, just hit the wall. It was... Brutal. By the end of it, I could read a blood test and all the the things I knew exactly. And before each chemo, you would have a little blood test. And I would say, can I see them? Can I see them? Because I could see if they would allow me to take the chemotherapy again. Because you look at what's called neutrophils, which are the little small white cells. And I would look and think, oh, I can take it. And I think one more, Joe, one more. And I and I literally, I just stepped, step by step by step. And that, you know, if there's anyone who's out there listening to this and is going through it, don't give up. Don't give up and don't stop smiling every single day. Because although it's hard, there is light at the end of the tunnel. And you come through, your hair comes back, your life comes back, your spirit comes back. and um, And you never, ever take it for granted ever again. So you went through the year from hell and you came out the other side. What happened next career-wise? You decided to leave. I did because cancer had changed me. You know, there's no no two ways about it. The chemo changed me. I went back. um, I had reconstruction. I was really happy with all of that. It's really, my mind was in a really strong, positive place. I knew that I was cancer-free. That's what I told myself. I'm cancer-free today. Tomorrow, I'll have to get up and see again. But today, I'm, I, you know, that awful thing of living with something that could come back. Mm. And I set my mindset at that. I stood in a, one of the Joe Malone stores on Madison Avenue. And I just, I just didn't feel part of it. I felt it was a job. I'd never had a job in my life. I, I still haven't to this day. And I didn't want to be in a job. I didn't want to do that. And it was nothing anyone did. It was just something that happened in my head. And so that night I made the decision that I was going to leave the business in really safe hands. I was very concerned about people's jobs. It's one of my big things in life. You know, when you employ people, they're your responsibility. And they promised me that everyone will be safe, and they were. And I left. I decided that um, we came back to London. And did that mean that Gary left also? Yes, yeah, what was he going to do without me? Yeah, you're tied, you're tied together, I can feel but it. But in leaving, in leaving, we put ourselves into a five-year lockout, which is right. completely the way business has to be. You paid mm-hmm. a lot of money for something and you exit. So that last day in Sloan Street, and by that point, you know, we'd come back, we'd settled as a family, and Leonard had come over, taken me for dinner, Sally Sussman had come over, and she was head of communications at Estee Lauder. And she looked at me on that last day and she said, are you sure? I knew I'd made a big mistake. And I just thought, what have I done? I've left this brand. And what I didn't realise was it was my best friend. It wasn't a job. It wasn't a career. I had walked away from my best friend. And the mm, person or the thing that had given me the, you know, some of the greatest adventures of life. And I turned, I asked Leonard whether I could turn the key for the last time and he said yes so I put the bottles on the shelves and I turned the key and I walked down the street and I sobbed my heart out and I live 30 seconds from that shop for five years I didn't walk past it I couldn't even touch a face cream I couldn't go near anything all I wanted was someone to go please come back and no one did I felt foolish I felt I'd made the biggest mistake of my life 
and I lost all sense of who I was. So chemo had taken my body. Leaving my job had taken my spirit. And I didn't know who I was again. You so, know, I know. so what did you do for the next... So oh, I was a nightmare. For the next five years. <laughs> the next five years, I literally counted them off, which is, no, which is the biggest lesson. It's no way to live your life at all, just counting days to, to something. And I made television shows for BBC. I I loved that television I, um, show. Can I just say, what was it called? High Street Dreams. Yeah, yeah. was amazing. But we were up against um, Wormwood Scrubs documentary. Oh, and they won. <laughs> Shame. Anyway. Well, I, I was watching and I Thank loved you. it. And that's where I first encountered uh, Miranda from Muddy Boots. Oh, and she's, oh, she's great. I'm so glad we did her. that because we gave an opportunity to people and opportunity is one of the greatest riches in life so I'm glad we did it yeah it was inspiring I really enjoyed um, it I, I sat at a lot of ladies lunches and I just thought I can't I you know what some people enjoy it great I don't I don't want to sit and do that I went into schools I put together an entrepreneurial program for kids to learn to be shopkeepers based on the four p's product place pricing and PR and I just did things that I felt I could contribute. But all I wanted to do was, was be a shopkeeper again. And was it fragrance that you had this sort of burning desire to return to? At what point did you have this moment and you go, right, this is what I'm going to do? Every day I thought of fragrance. Every single day. And I had... So when I create fragrance, they arrive in metal canisters. And I had four metal canisters. And I would go and I would look at them and think and just smell. And I don't know, it was just this... It's like if you're a pianist and you take the piano away, something disappears. You, you, you can close your eyes and you'll sit and you'll play the piano. For me, I close my eyes and it was like, I just want to create. I want to sit in a lab. It's just part of who I am and it, it completes me. So I had the five-year lockout and when I left Joe Malone, I left it. I never, ever intended in returning because it was such a painful thing. I mean, what would I have done? And during those five years, I longed every day for someone to get offer me a job. I did, and no one did, because no one knew I was looking. <laughs> In my sort of little world... They thought you were having a lovely time going out for lunch. Or holidaying, or, you know, doing those things. And yeah, it was, the things you'd never had time for. somebody offer me a job, and no one did. So I got to the point, and I thought, I'm too old to sit here and go right back to the beginning and start and learn something new, and I'm too young to sit and moan. You've either got to get up, girl, and do something about it, or you've got to shut up. And I decided I was going to do something about it. So, Joe Loves mm. was then your focus. Tell us, how did it start? What came first? Were you mixing things in your kitchen again? I imagine not, but you doing it. All, you were, okay. Yes. It's the only way I know how to build. So, back around the kitchen table, and it was just such a huge sort of task. It was like looking at a mountain and standing there in your flip-flops and your shorts and thinking, how on earth am I going to climb this? And like every entrepreneur, one step at a time, just plan it and do what you can do in that day. I had all these kind of ideas in my head of things that I wanted to create and do, but I hadn't created fragrance for five years. So it didn't come back naturally either. Just like anything in life, if you don't practice it, you sometimes lose the ability and the strength to do it really well. And I created some fragrance i mean listen i can create fragrance in my sleep but would it be the, the fragrances that would change the world again and when i started out it was never about a hobby it was about building a global brand and changing the world it was from day one no mistake about that that's where i was going and these fragrances weren't going to do that so gary took me away to parrot key on holiday 
and Parakee is a tiny little mm-hmm. desert island in the Turks and Caicos. I was suffering huge anxiety at the time. I was I would get numb down one side of my face where I was getting my knickers in the right twist about life. And the more I tried to create fragrance, the less I was able to. So is it like a block? It was, yeah. I mean, when I've read about like Picasso and musicians, I understand that. Where you're just, you're void of anything in your head. And no matter what you do, nothing locks together. Anyway, so we went away and I, I walked down the beach one morning. Very early, I would go off on my own every morning and think and try and create. And I walked down the beach and suddenly I looked in the side of the water and Turks and Caicos sits behind a coral reef. So there's not this huge tide coming in and out. And there are lots of amazing marine life from turtles to stingrays to beautiful things that swim in the beaches. And as I looked around, there was a baby stingray and it just was fluttering by the water. And I looked and it stopped. And when I walked, it was mirroring me walking and me looking. And it was intrigued with me as I was with it. (laughs) And I walked to the end of the beach and it followed me. And then I turned around and then it swam and and went off. It was just that moment that I thought, I don't own creativity. It just wants to mimic what I feel. It, It was like that penny dropping. And I looked up, I looked at the sky, I looked at the beach I looked at my flip-flops. I could smell this um, infusion that they were cooking in the bistro. I looked at the fizzy water. And I captured every single thing I saw in one note, put it together, and that's pomelo. For me, when I doubt something, I smell it, and it's like, no, 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 don't... don't Clarity. And sometimes we overcomplicate creativity. We try and build rooms where it's housed. It doesn't... Creativity doesn't live in four walls, Creativity will live under an umbrella, sort of, you know, sitting at a bus stop, sitting in a library. Creativity sits by the side of you and whispers and says, come on, you know, let's go on an adventure. And when you respect creativity like that, that's when its currency just really increases in your life and your business. So that was the beginnings of Pomelo. That was the creation of Pomelo. You came back from that holiday and what happened next we had four fragrances i had an orange tulle which was like a ballerina's tutu gardenia which was the black tie dinner at downtown abbey a green orange and coriander which was snow in new york city which is my favorite <laughs> and crunchy snow in new york city but it's so fresh and green isn't it, mm, love and it. so we launched with four I got all the packaging wrong. I put it all in red boxes. So the big thing starting another brand was the consumer cannot be confused. They can't think. So so let's talk about that because it's, you know, even today, I imagine there are people that still can't get their heads around it. Well, so I'm not a lawyer and I'm not speaking on a legal. And if there's someone listening to this saying that's not complete, this is how I interpreted and understood it. And I've certainly not got myself into trouble. I had no desire to tread on anyone's toes and upset anyone either. And I still don't. I love them, but I was not going to be told I couldn't enter the industry again. I had to. I had to do that for myself. So the big thing is that if you launch another brand, but I was, I'm was, i Joe Malone the person. There's Joe Malone Cream and Black Box, but I'm not creating for Cream and Black Box anymore. So I had to be completely different. And you have to make sure that the consumer understands mm. that I couldn't change being Joe because I'm Joe. But I had to. The brand had to be... You couldn't pass it off. That's what it's called. It's called a a, a passing passing off. off, Exactly. So we had to make sure they were very different. And we had a statement on every box, which made it very clear that this was a new brand. Every piece of PR that we did, every interview, I made it clear. And so I went above and beyond to try and make sure that everybody understood this was a different brand. And in the beginning, 
it was like walking through treacle because no one knew I'd left. Mm. Everyone still, the people still think I'm there. Somebody said to me the other day about a fragrance and I said, I didn't create that one. You know, I'm not going to take credit for something I haven't done. And I just thought, oh my God, you know, we sent a press release. Well, so what? The world's Mm. moved on and it still bears your name. Mm. And so I think there was naivety on my part and stupidity on my part. But I still wanted to enter the. I still wanted to come. Stupidity in what sense? Well, because I hadn't realised. I really hadn't realised, and I was then in a situation where, where, okay, you've started this brand. Do you want to quit? Do you want to get out? Did you have those conversations with yourself? uh, I still have those conversations with myself. If I'm really honest, I think any any person in a business, you know, does. But in the beginning, yes, and that first Christmas, oh my goodness, it was painful. And then we got to the new year and I said to Gary, should we just give it one more year? And he said, one more year. And we did that for two years. And then we started to see something change. The minute we got this shop, the business changed. Something really dynamic and dramatic happened. And people that come into this store, like we did a PA on Saturday, they know I'm Joe. They know I was Joe Lime Basil and Mandarin 20 years ago, but they know I'm Joe Pomelo now. You know, people have understood the difference. But it took a long time to get that and a lot of money. And, you know, people often say, do you have investors? And I say, yeah, two, Gary <laughs> and Joe. We invested in our own future and our own business. The only people that are owed money in my business are Gary and Joe. That's it. And what was the vision for this business? The vision is to continue to be the artist and the creator that I am. If you ask any artist, if you sat, had sat with Picasso and said, so what's different about this painting than one you did that? You know, he'd look at you and, and probably say, well, I'm different. That's how I interpreted that situation and that life. And I think, for me, this isn't about a fragrance house. This is an interpretation of life. So my life experiences, the way I see things, I'm much, I'm so much more courageous and bold and... I'm gutsy, I feel, in in creating fragrance now, where I was much more timid in the beginning part of my career, whereas now, like, Smoke Plum on Leather is a complete example of that. Oh, She is one gutsy girl, that one, and doesn't care if you don't like it. Don't like it? Don't wear me. Yeah, buy something else. Yeah, buy something else. But I would never have had the courage to do that before, whereas now, and I think life has taught me, be who you are, Jo, don't pretend... So it comes with age, though, doesn't it? And experience. Yeah, I do, I do think it comes with And, you know, sometimes I say things and I do things and people go, well, you know, should you really be doing that? And it's like, I, I don't care. I'm going to be who I am. Yeah. Because if you pretend to be someone you're not, you end up an unhappy person and it, eventually people will see through it. Yes. So yeah. I'm going to be who I am. Come on down eventually. Yeah. And what was the response from the industry when you started again? You obviously knew you had a good product again. So, well, in the very beginning, I needed a house to work with. So I used my married name and I called and called and no one called back. And by within 10 days, I thought, right, that's it. I'm going to use Joe Malone because I am Joe. So I called a fragrance house and my call was returned within five minutes. <laughs> and, Funny that. Um, I'm, not, I'm not going to say who they are, but they're family to me. And they, they took me from that first day and lots of tears and lots of having to really rebuild myself. And I went back into a laboratory and they took me back and nurtured me back, which was an important thing. So once I got that behind me, I then, my confidence, you know, confidence is a huge thing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the only things that we can't do in life is because we believe we can't. We can do anything we want to do in life. You might have to go and train, you might have to go and do all those things, but you can do them. 
And creating fragrance for me then started to come back. But I could feel myself running before I was walking. I could feel my step. I felt just more of a person than I'd ever felt. And all of this emotion started to pour back into my brand. But I wanted to be creative. I wanted to change the world. Gary had set me a challenge. Although he's a brilliant husband, brilliant business partner, he is very demanding in business. (laughs) Rightly so, but he sure is. And he said, I want one patented concept a year and I want you once in your lifetime to change the way the world does something that's like okay mate well that's great what are you going to be doing then on a (laughs) Monday to Friday and he just looked at me and he went I'll run the business you have to go and do that so my my roles here are creative director so I work on product and I work on the uh, PR and that side of it and the in-between bit we bring great people in to run the in-between bit so that's how we started out, you know, four and, fragrances. And has it been harder, easier? I mean, in theory, it should be easy. But, you know, you have that naivety first time around. Absolutely. Much it's- harder. Different. I'm older. And I got to a point, I mean, listen, I'm only 55. And was I relevant? Am I still relevant? You know, that was, that was my big question. Could I reinvent myself? Did, um, did potential, was there something within me that could really build again? I am about building a global brand. It's it's not about a hobby on Elizabeth Street. And, you know, that was quite tough. But if I look at myself as I did 20 years ago, I wouldn't be true to who I am. I started to really delve into what I really wanted to do. So the patented concept is the candle, the shot candle. And the paradigm shift was the paintbrush scented. the gel fragrance gel paintbrush. Paint, fragrance paintbrush Which exactly the first in the world when we finished all of the r&d on that all of the and it took two and a half years and it was oh it was grueling but we got there i'm about to launch it and uh, naomi who's head of operations said to me where are we going to launch it first and i said new york and she said where and i said the wwd conference now that is a conference where the whole of the beauty industry in the world go to so that's Women's Wear Daily. The Women's Wear Daily, exactly. It's quite a scary thing. And I was a speaker. You know, they've been supportive of me ever since I began. So off I trotted. And I thought, I am going to introduce the paintbrush to them. I, my knees were knocking, <laughs> I can't tell you. I put my smartest dress on that I could, my high shoes, made up my face. And I thought, Joe, this is your moment. Get out there and tell the story. So I told the story of the paintbrush. And as I brought it out, I heard the whole room go, <gasps> If I could capture one moment in my life that really that would have been one of them, without doubt, that I heard the whole of the industry take their breath. And this man came up to me afterwards and he said, you've done it again. You launched Joe Loves in 2011. How is it different from launching a business back in 1994? So 94 was a recession. the year, So it was a really tough time. And you'll see through really tough financial times in economies that small entrepreneurial businesses they will rise because often they've either been made redundant or they're they suddenly think to themselves now is my moment and you'll see lots of small businesses so 1994 was during that time it was just coming out or in the middle of recession and starting here we were going through tough economic times and I'm one of the ambassadors for the great campaign on creativity. And I was at that point going around the world talking about SMEs and the importance of the army of voices that we need in this country. And I realized that if I was talking about it, I had to do it. I had to put my money where my mouth was. practice what you preach, yeah. yeah. 
I could I could feel this sort of momentum happening. And so was it a different time? Yes, it was. It was much tougher. And as I said, I was older. Means of like social media. I still don't understand it today, I've got to be honest. <laughs> if I'm struggling, you know, I'll go to one of our younger members of our team because I don't understand it. You know, I, I was used to writing a press release and waiting six weeks to see if anyone responded. Well, thank God for the next generation who you can you can turn and to. And I embrace I embrace that. One of my things we talk about in the um, ten life lessons is the collaboration of the next generation. This is vital. But anyway, yes, it was a completely different thing. All the rules that governed us, but what was the same is the heartbeats of the creator and the heartbeats of the consumer. That was still the same. I still understood that, and I knew how to create fragrance. So with that, that was enough for me to go up and uh, start again. And what does the size of the business look like now? So how's the growth been gone? So it's what we've seen. What's really interesting with the consumer is the consumer, when she walks through the door, will bring the three generations with them. That's really interesting. Yeah, that is. If you were here this weekend when we did um, the store appearance, it was incredible to see three generations of people walking through those doors. That never happened to me in that way before. Other things that how the consumer has changed, I think the Asian market, Far Eastern market. So I, when I went to Shanghai, I did two days, three days in Shanghai, popped up a tapas bar, and suddenly that opened, that literally opened up a territory for us. And we've seen since that day this huge rush of you know that market coming so asia is a big market for you is it? absolutely but i think of all you know all the other things like we opened with 63 space nk stores uh, a month six weeks ago that is literally oh. flying we opened with sephora we've um sold on emirates airline the paintbrushes so never be ashamed of small beginnings this is one little shop in elizabeth street but she now has a voice globally right the way across the world Yes, we'll be opening more stores, but we had to get the heartbeat of this right. We had to get the team right because the worst thing in the world is to take something successful, start to blueprint it around the world, and you make mistake after mistake. Make your mistakes when you're when you're small, learn from them, and then take it and then plant it out and make them strong identities in themselves. So we're working with Ilate now, which has been a joy. The day we started to work together, and something changed. They're a great PR. Agency, but something changed. It just literally changed, and it was like a breath of fresh air. Uh, We work with Mission in America, so another Brit. Nicola is incredible, and her team. So we've had Blake here, um, who came and lived here, learn all of our stories and everything. She's a a dream, wasn't she? So you know, on a chessboard, when you're trying Mm. to get to checkmate, you've got to get them all in the right, right, you know, right way, and think of the strategy. Business is the same. Mm. Don't don't be too quick to jump because the opportunity is there make sure the opportunity is right and for Gary and I the opportunities are literally coming one every single day now I'm sure you have to stay focused and yeah as you say get the basics right let's talk about the product because I think what's so incredible is this obvious talent that you have and you've done it all over again and the product just speaks for itself so much whether you know that it's your name or not you can't help but adore it and find something that you're going to love what do people love what are the best sellers what are you Um, proudest of 
Well, oh my goodness, what am I proudest of? The one I'm working on now. I, I mean, always when you create something, so we have something launched in September. So next year is my 25th anniversary of being a shopkeeper <laughs> and in retail. So it starts September this year and it starts with a, a pretty major kickoff. So I'll, I'll start there and then work backwards. So the graffiti body sprays, no color, just fragrance, tuberose, grapefruit, vetiver and fig based upon four loves of artists from Van Gogh to Klimt, Woman in Gold. So it's all the stories behind the, the interpretations Amazing. of that. The paintbrush, the fragrance, I think pomelo probably because it was, you know, it was the very first one. But at the minute, I kind of, because I'm getting older, I need something sweet on my body. So white rose with lemon leaves, which is my interpretation of the Union Jack. Oh. Mm. And tell me what qualities in you do you think have made you so successful? I think, I don't know made, made me successful, but have my down-to-earthness. I think I'm very, my feet are on the ground. I'm not fooled. I think that's a good quality. My resilience, my passion that I feel for what I do. And it's no one's responsibility to inject passion into their business but mine. You know, if I don't feel passionately about what we do, no one else will. I think my single-mindedness, you know what? I am a driven person. I know I am. I'll admit when I'm wrong, but if I believe in something, don't dare try and walk across my path <laughs> because I, I'll, I'm going to carry on going and you can either come with me and join me or you go, but don't try and take me off of where I believe is we're really meant to be. Well, I think that's the perfect <laughs> place to finish, Joe. If anyone epitomises success, it's you. So I'm so thrilled to have been able to interview you oh, today. Thank, thank you, you so, so much. Thank you. That's it for this week. If you enjoyed that, then do please rate, review, subscribe and tell your friends. We'll see you next time. Bye bye.